Hello folks and a warm welcome to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the North Wales based true crime podcast bringing to you those unfamiliar and obscure tales of crime and wrongdoing from all corners of the UK and Ireland. And these tales come to you from the spare bedroom of myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. It's amazing having you guys joining me here as all, it really does mean so much that you do all the time and I hope that as you're hearing this, each of you is safe, you're all good and you're all well. So because part 4 of Maniac was delayed slightly and only dropped the other day, I don't want you guys to be waiting around for stuff if I can help it and I can help this so the 5th part of this series multi-episode Maniac arc drops right now and I picked a bloody right one to cover in depth this series. The research has been mind-bending, that's the only word I can come up with, but it would haunt me if I put out something and thought, actually I could have probably done better there. It's not what I strive to do here on The Enthusiast. So occasionally it may take a little longer than usual, but I do promise you I don't do it half assed at all. Plus I love doing what I do, it's my proper passion, so win-win. Because it's the second episode this week then, I won't waffle too much shite at the beginning, but I do have some thanks going out though. Firstly, to everyone who has so kindly donated to the True Crime Enthusiast Podcast Macmillan Cancer Support Fundraiser that I have here on the show. It's amazing of you guys, thank you so much. We're almost at the halfway point now of what I'd love to raise. And for everyone who's kindly donated, what else can I say apart from you're the best and thanks very much. If or when we surpass the total amount that I'd love to raise, then I'll release either another of the bonus episodes, or I may even try and find some time somewhere and write a brand new bonus episode for the occasion for everyone who knows. I have also, since I last recorded, had some new Patreon supporters, so again, big thanks are also out this episode to returning and new supporters Colleen Harrigan Meissenholder, Bellatrix, Angela Frodsham, Tamaris Lamb, Chris Gallagher, Claire Louise Price, Marie, Victoria S, Adele Moll, Helen Jane Cheadle, OMG It's Ellie, Always Searching, and the wonderfully named Kerry Lovely. The names that some of you guys have on there are ace. I absolutely love them. Thanks so much for your kind support, folks, and I hope that you've had a chance to get to grips with the unreleased bonus episodes of The Enthusiast that you get for your kind support. This month will be winging its way in a couple of weeks and for it I've chosen a triple tale spanning from the 1970s to the 1990s. But that's a couple of weeks away yet, we've got a multi-parter to demolish first and we should go some ways to doing that following a short word from the episode sponsors ExpressVPN. Now until recently I thought that virtual private networks only served to look after our privacy and security in today's online world. But what they can also do, I learned, which is a bit of a godsend in these days where the bloody lights go out more than you do, is to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. And by using the unique link expressvpn.com forward slash true crime, the episode sponsors ExpressVPN are kindly offering listeners to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast an extra three months of ExpressVPN free when you sign up. Imagine the square eyes that you can get with that. What ExpressVPN does is hides your IP address so you control where you want streaming sites to think that you're located. With a choice of nearly 100 different countries worldwide to choose from, 
Just imagine the online libraries that you can go through there when you're looking for something to watch. Netflix, Hulu, Spotify if you want something to listen to. ExpressVPN works with all of these and pretty much any streaming service. It's lag free, it's buffer free and it's so fast Usain Bolt would sweat to keep up with it. Plus you can stream your content in high def no problem and it's compatible with all range of devices from your smartphone to your smart TV. So you can watch what you want on the big screen at home or on the go, wherever you are it doesn't matter. You simply find the stuff that you want to watch, say for example you live in Germany and it's Star Trek Discovery on UK Netflix or you live in Australia but can only find Rick and Morty on Netflix France. You simply load up the ExpressVPN app, swap your location to that of the host country of what you want to watch, refresh your streaming provider, and Robert's your mother's brother. That's all there is to it. So to support the show, to watch what you want from wherever you want, and protect your online privacy and security to bat, with three months free thrown in, head over to expressvpn.com forward slash true crime. Once again, that's expressvpn.com forward slash true crime. And now, back to Maniac. Now, I'm not even going to recap the whole arc here, because hopefully part four is still fresh in your minds anyway. But if you're unsure, head back and have a re-listening. But I'll quickly surmise. In recent episodes of The Ark, we've looked at the notorious, horrific murder of mother Rachel Nickell in front of her two-year-old son Alex on Wimbledon Common back in July 1992. And in the previous episode, we met Colin Stagg, the loner who rapidly became, in the eyes of police, the prime suspect in the murder. He was arrested and questioned, but there was no evidence to charge Stagg, who as time passed, police became more and more convinced was Rachel's killer. With their prime suspect released back onto the streets, police had to wonder if he would slip up or where they may possibly find any evidence that they needed to confront Stag with, but it seemed that barring him confessing to someone, that wasn't likely. And then, in October 1992, a woman named Julie Pines got in touch with the incident room, and with it planted the seeds of an idea in police minds of how perhaps to do this which I'll tell you all about this episode. The episode does contain descriptions of crimes and events, including graphic descriptions of a sexual nature that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing. So as always, folks, please use your discretion whilst you're listening in. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for part five of the Maniac Arc and the concluding part of The Pagan Who Became a Pariah hunting the stag. The small advert placed in the personal columns of Loop magazine in January 1991 read as follows. Lonely, shy, overweight white woman, aged 33, not very attractive, separated and waiting divorce, looking for white guy, 28 to 38, who like myself is understanding, loving and likes home life. Must be non-smoker and loves animals. Is this you? Why not right now? Box 6109. The advert had been placed by a woman named Julie Pines, fresh out of an unhappy marriage and seeking to get back into the dating game, and had shortly afterwards received a reply from a 28-year-old South London man who on paper fitted the bill perfectly. 
Colin Stagg. He'd replied to Dear Overweight Lonely Shy in a mostly generic letter detailing his looks, his interests and hobbies. Although he was as open as to admit never having had a girlfriend before and was a red-blooded male whose thoughts were never far from women. Getting a bit more into the flow of things as the letter went on, he continued by telling Julie that he enjoyed walking around his house, starkers and sunbathing bare arsed, but stressed he wasn't a pervert and would understand if she wasn't interested. He was after his all over tan even back then, eh? At this point in the letter, it's claimed that Stag added, But if, due to distance, we cannot meet, perhaps we can communicate with each other by sending letters about our fantasies. However, he then told Julie if she wasn't interested in thrills, he would still happily write to her anyway, and signed off, Yours truly, C. Stag. Julie replied to him and a short correspondence grew, in which time she passed him her telephone number and the letters turned to telephone calls. It was after the first of these that he wrote back to her, apologising for his nerves and being tongue-tied on the telephone, before asking whether it would be alright for them to exchange letters detailing sexual fantasies, stressing again to her not to worry because he wasn't a weirdo pervert. He hadn't waited for a reply as to whether she agreed or not to this request, for contained within the letter was another envelope, this one that his letter explained contained a, I quote, bluntly written letter by a red-blooded male, and that he hoped she wasn't offended by its style and content, but if so, or she wasn't interested, she was to rip it up and bin it. The other letter to which he referred, written in neat block capitals and headed, My Fantasy, in brackets, or one of them anyway, was a lengthy narrative in which he described a graphic, extremely detailed outdoor sexual encounter, crucially in his local park he had claimed, with a woman who, although he didn't refer to Julie by name, was a carbon copy of her own physical description. So full-on and graphic was the narrative, in only the third letter, that it had shocked her, and she'd written back to him furiously depicting it as disgusting and filthy, telling him never to contact her again. She'd also claimed to him to have destroyed the letter, although for reasons not revealed, she had in fact kept it, and Stag never contacted her again. And now, more than a year later, there he was on the television news, running out of court after admitting a charge of indecent exposure. Not to mention beforehand that he'd been arrested and held for three days as a suspect in the notorious Wimbledon Common murder of just a couple of months previously. Wrestling with the knowledge that she thought may have important implications to the inquiry, Julie decided to contact the incident room at Wimbledon. When Detective Inspector Keith Pedder read the letter Julie Pines brought to the incident room, to him it was simply another pointer that they had the right man under surveillance police were convinced of it. He consulted Paul Britton with the letter Julie had brought in, the transcripts of the interviews tapes with Stagg and all of the other material that police had on him and asked Britton if there was anything in the interview transcripts or materials that would allow him to say categorically that in his opinion this man could not be responsible for the murder of Rachel Nickell based upon the offender profile and deviant sexuality analysis that he'd given police. Britain could not say that anything indicated it wasn't him, but you could also not say with certainty that it was, even though on paper 
Stag could be matched to 14 of the 16 points in the offender profile that Britton had created. The only points he couldn't being that there was nothing to indicate he'd rehearsed the offence in fantasy because they just didn't know and of course that the person responsible would kill again because they had no firm evidence that he was already a killer yet bar an overwhelming suspicion. But the Julie Pines letters had planted the seeds of an idea in D.I. Pedder's mind which he outlined to DCI Mike Wickerson and then further up the hierarchy to Detective Superintendent John Bassett. All agreed that Stagg was a compelling suspect. On paper, what they knew about him from the evidence found at his home and what he'd revealed through interviews left the profile of Rachel's killer fitting him in almost all of the points and he could be placed five minutes from the scene of the murder with two witnesses claiming accounts that cast doubt on his version of events of the day of Rachel's death. Because Stagg's arrest hadn't led to any charges being brought, there was talk of scaling the massive inquiry down, as we've said many times. Police are always needed elsewhere as crime doesn't wait about, does it? And this was an appalling thought. The sight of little shell-shocked Alex still imprinted on each of their minds striving them forward to bring justice for his murdered mum. So the idea had been kicked around that perhaps an undercover operation was the way forward with this. Say if someone, an undercover officer, were to befriend Stag and gain his trust and confidence, then over time he may reveal his innermost thoughts, fantasies or secrets to the officer. A successful operation may recover that evidence that police didn't have against Stag, but were hopeful existed, a murder weapon or soiled or bloodstained clothing. He may even, under the right circumstances, even admit to Rachel's murder. Or alternatively, should he not turn out to be the killer that they were after, he may eliminate himself from the inquiry. But this may be a problem, because as we know, Stag wasn't exactly Mr. Friends. He'd also become somewhat of a figure of hate on the Alton estate following his arrest and conviction for indecent exposure. No longer just passed off as weird Colin, he was now verbally abused by many with threats of violence and calls of pervert or nonce on almost every trip that he made out of the house. Several people he'd known on nodding terms or to say hello to at times now cold-shouldered him and in the weeks and months following his conviction he'd reported to Wandsworth and Putney Police on several occasions instances where his home had been egged, his windows had been put through and his front door and back gate had been damaged. And by that time, estate justice had practically convicted him, and the shouts of murderer, killer, or just plain foul-mouthed abuse were now almost as common from several people on the estate. By Stagg's own account, his home had now become even more of a fortress for him than it was before. So not Mr. Popular, but certainly Mr. Pariah. So the problem police had was how could any undercover operation get near to someone who now trusted less people than Fox Mulder? And then Julie Pines contacted the incident room and the idea was born. Once again, Paul Britton was contacted and D.I. Pedder now asked him if it would be possible, based upon his analysis of Rachel's likely killer, to design a covert operation that would allow the investigating team to either eliminate a suspect from the inquiry completely or in which a person may further implicate themselves. 
It would be an operation that would be based upon the knowledge that they had of the killer's sexual deviancy, which would be used to give the target of the operation space to potentially reveal their involvement in the murder by letting them develop a position of trust with an undercover operative. Britain said that it could indeed be done, but it would have to be run under the strictest of conditions and categorically not be a witch hunt, but rather an exercise designed with cut-off points along the way in which the target of the exercise would either eliminate himself completely or implicate himself further through his own subconscious choices. Britain claimed he would expect the right person to display signs of the deviancy that he had outlined in Rachel's Killer, and over time possibly make disclosures that would show this. This is not to suggest automatically that this was a killer, but the chances of two such deviants being on Wimbledon Common that morning were, to quote Britain, vanishingly small. Nothing was to be suggested or introduced to the suspect in any way, it had to come solely from him, and any communication that may develop along these lines could only feature elements that the suspect had introduced himself. For example, if he mentioned beheadings, the operative could then mention it back to him in conversation at a future date because the suspect had introduced this element. Like a fighting fantasy choose-your-own-adventure-for-murders suspect, really, isn't it? After being assured that CPS lawyers would be looking at the entire premise before it was even suggested to the top brass, because there's not much point going to all that work if evidentially it's a non-starter, Britain agreed to design an operation along the lines mentioned. The top brass at the Met were supportive of the idea when they were informed, and when the premise had been looked at for its legality, the ethics of it, and whether it would be admissible as evidence in a court of law, and returned with no foreseeable problem, by January 1993, it was greenlit. Now Paul Britton had devised two specific personality types for the undercover officer, a male and a female one, that would be designed to appeal to the killer of Rachel Nickel, based on the profile he'd created. He didn't know for certain at that stage that Stag was to be the subject of the operation, although he was aware that he remained as a suspect. The male officer would be white and in the age range of 25 to 30 years old, should downplay his intelligence and be comfortable describing a range of sexual fantasies and actions that were on the same lines but of course fell short of Rachel's killer. His backstory would include examples of sailing through any police interviews confidently or even avoiding these because police had never been able to get close enough to interview him for offences he'd committed. He had to begin the relationship cautiously but expressed surprise as the subject began to disclose his own activities once their mutual trust had grown, with the officer then gradually disclosing more of his own history, including violent sexual crime. In such a comfortable environment, the suspect could then feel safe, even boastful perhaps, in revealing his own background, and no mention of Rachel Nickel would have been made to shape any of his disclosures. The female officer would be in the 20 to 40 years age range and attractive in a traditional sense with blonde or fair hair that was at least shoulder length. She should appear sexually knowledgeable without being promiscuous and in a way that suggested she was aroused by coercive activity in which she would preferably be slightly passive but often active 
whilst willing to indicate to the suspect her enjoyment of sharing experiences with men who had created with her fantasies progressing from romance into sexual violence. She would also have a dark secret in her life and an interest in occult religion, which would overlap. That sounds a doddle, doesn't it? Two officers from SO10, the former Metropolitan Police Covert Operations Division, were selected for the exercise, a male and a female. But the male officer was ruled out as he had actually begun preparing for his interception of Stag, the plan being he would bump into him and make conversation whilst out walking the dog, when the officer took severely ill, leaving the operation to run with a female undercover operative. Step into the tail, and this is not a real name of course, Detective Constable Lizzie James. Both officers had been taken to a meeting with Paul Britton at his offices in Leicester where he operated from and were given their cover stories and how they would intercept Stag. They were also given as little knowledge as possible about the Nickel murder investigation, being told seldom more than someone could glean from a newspaper or television report on the crime. Now you might think, hang on, I'm going up close and personal with a potential maniacal killer I want to be fully in the loop here, come on. Giving them as little knowledge as possible about the investigation ensured that there was no risk of them letting slip some detail that was known only to police and Rachel's killer himself, thus making Stag suspicious and negating the whole exercise. As we shall refer to her, Lizzie's angle into Stag was to be his pen pal. Now to combat the oddness of a woman just writing to him out of the blue and wanting to get to know him, because that would make anybody suspicious, wouldn't it? This is where the letters Stag had written to Julie Pines came in. The angle was worked out that Lizzie would play the part of a former friend of Julie's, but that they'd had a falling out while she'd been staying with her because of her old-fashioned, prim outlook on life. While she was staying with Julie... Lizzie had come across the letters that Julie had received from Colin over a year previously and not only had they intrigued her because they shared a similar love of animals and she thought he sounded an interesting person but that they'd excited her. It was deemed that this would appear above board to Stag. He'd feel safe with this and have no reason to disbelieve it because he didn't know police knew about these letters. At the time he'd been arrested and interviewed Neither did they, and he hadn't mentioned them. There was also no way he could possibly be in touch with Julie still, because she'd strongly asked him not to contact her, and had indeed moved house. Paul Britton was confident that if Stagg's levels of caution were not raised, then he would be comfortable and would likely reply. To help facilitate this level of comfort, at the end of January 1993, Stagg's police bail over the Rachel Nickell inquiry was deliberately cancelled and the majority of his property that police had seized at the time of his initial arrest returned to him, leaving him in effect thinking that that was it, police were done with him. How wrong he was. An accommodation address was obtained, Suite 401, 3 Langham House, 302-308 Regent Street, London W1, and the initial letter making contact from Lizzie to Stagg, dated the 19th of January 1993, read as follows. Dear Colin, I hope you're not offended by this intrusion as we've never met before, but I feel as though I've known you for years. 
You may remember writing to a woman called Julie. Julie was an old friend of mine and a little old-fashioned in her outlook, if you know what I mean. A while ago when I stayed with her, while she was out I read a letter that you'd sent her. I hope you remember. This letter has been on my mind and interests me greatly. I find myself thinking of you a lot. I would be very interested in getting to know you more and writing to you again. I'll tell you a bit about myself. I am divorced, like Julie, and quite frankly have had my fill of shallow one-way relationships as I've had my fingers burned too many times. I'm 5 foot 8, blonde, age 30, and I've been called attractive in the past. My interests may sound boring, but I don't socialise much and prefer my own company. I read a lot and have often contemplated writing a book. I have an odd taste in music, my favourite record being Walk on the Wild Side by Lou Reed. I'm a bit cautious but not paranoid. I'd appreciate it if you didn't let Julie know that I've written to you as our friendship has dwindled. I've taken an accommodation address in London so you can contact me there, in brackets it says. I am in the process of moving flats and I don't want any letters going missing. I'm in central London about twice a week. I hope you're not upset by this letter and I look forward to hearing from you soon. Lizzie, kiss. P.S. My name is Lizzie James. Just two days later, a letter was received at the accommodation address from Colin Stagg, whose response in neat block capitals began. Dear Lizzie, thank you so much for your letter, which I read with great interest. Can you let me know what I put in that letter to Julie, as I do not recall sending any letters to someone of that name? Stagg then indicated in his letter that he would be interested in writing to Lizzie on a regular basis. He felt that they had several things in common. He went on to describe himself, his physical description, interests, hobbies and pastimes, before stating how although it was quiet where he lived, he didn't like small-minded people or being dictated to as how to live his life. He claimed, We must each find our own paths to travel along. I do not like people who are closed-minded. I'll admit to you that every summer I like to do a bit of nude sunbathing over my local park in a secluded spot, of course, just to get an all-over suntan. But people think that's perverted. Small minds, small intelligence. He then signed off the letter by saying it would be nice to have someone he could communicate with and get to know intimately. And after asking for a photograph of Lizzie, ended it with, Love Colin, Three Kisses. These two letters mark the beginning of what was to be a seven-month courtship, if you like, between Colin Stagg and the fictional Lizzie James. It certainly was one on the part of Colin Stagg anyway and was to amount to some 1,700 pages of written evidence over a correspondence of between 30 and 40 letters. Now it's obviously a bollocks idea to replicate each of the letters here, aside from not all of them being reproduced and available, it would take longer than a series of the bloody X Factor to do, wouldn't it? But there will be extracts. As soon as the second letter in which Stagg claimed that he did remember sending a letter to a Julie some time before, and that it was explicit. He also claimed in it that he would like to send similar letters to Lizzie that revealed his fantasies about them being together, and invited her to reciprocate. The letter, which also contained a photograph of Stagg, in part reads, 
I can, if you want, enclose a personal letter with this one about a fantasy I've had since you first wrote to me. You've been on my mind ever since. I hope you're not offended by my letters. It's just I've always had an open mind about sex, but I've never really found anyone on the same wavelength. I bet you've had a few fantasies yourself. So as for asking permission if this was okay, that went right out of the window and he thought, oh bollocks, I'm doing it anyway. For enclosed was a fantasy story involving him and Lizzie having sex in his back garden. Although it was a bit full on for what was only the second letter to someone he didn't know, it was an unexceptional fantasy really, vanilla stuff that's found in pretty much any of the top shelf jazz pamphlets. Well I imagine anyway, I'm not really into the grumble books myself, but there you go. Valentine's cards were swapped between the two, and then a third letter came from Stag, by which time he was already coming on incredibly strong and asking Lizzie to visit, stressing, If you're a bit weary about me, then bring a friend, for I know there are lots of dangers for women, in brackets, and children, these days, with all these weirdos and nutters about. There was a sexual fantasy included within this letter also, about the pair involving in mutual oral sex before having intercourse, but again, an unexceptional one. Following on from this letter though, two things could be established. The letters to Lizzie James would be replied to promptly, and would in almost all cases be a letter in two parts. The first would be a normal letter, shall we say, the usual narrative in which he responded to any questions about trivialities that she may ask him. How's the cat, or... Do you watch Corrie, that type of thing? Whilst always enclosed would be a separate special letter, a fantasy letter involving a graphically written sexual encounter. Each normal letter would strive to build a relationship between them, whilst also having an undertone of caution and insecurity. He would often ask that he hoped his previous letter was okay, and would stress how glad she was as uninhibited and broad-minded as he was almost as though he was searching for permission. Whilst any reply from Lizzie James concerning them wasn't personally gushing over these fantasy letters, they weren't like, wow, I love them. They were carefully worded to say things like, you're a brilliant storyteller, or I don't mind your letters in the slightest, whilst never reciprocating any fantasies to stag. Instead, he'd be fobbed off, if you like, by such things as, You'll have to wait for a letter like that from me, I'm building up to it. But throughout any, the responses were designed to indicate that she was not shocked by them and didn't reject his outpourings. So it continued. Lizzie James soon enclosed a photograph of herself, which was always a difficult ask for an undercover operative. To get around this, she'd had hair extensions put in, which it was possible to position so that it obscured partly her features. And by taking a photograph of her outdoors looking over her shoulder, you know, the kind of shot that Instagram was made for, the result was a natural-looking photograph that Stag loved. It went immediately into a frame on his mantelpiece it was to transpire some time later. He replied to this with a gushing normal letter thanking her, and a separate one entitled... A special treat for my beautiful Lizzie. The letter, a mix of Mills and Boone Schlick and graphic descriptions of sex between him and Lizzie in all manner of positions, introduced what was to be a heavily recurring theme in Stagg's special letters. Him firmly in control, 
an outdoor setting in a small clearing near a fallen tree and a stream. Now this letter got police salivating somewhat, because it could almost be a description of Wimbledon Common after all, but it was again an unexceptional account. It's a common enough fantasy of many, isn't it, outdoor sex? Lizzie was advised by Paul Britton not to reply immediately, as a pointer to give Stag chance to reflect and withdraw from the relationship. After all, it was Stag who dictated the direction the operation went in. He couldn't be led or pushed, and although it was advised that a follow-up letter could respond in similar tone to the descriptions he'd written, he had to have the freedom to respond in his own way. If he did, then Paul Britton predicted he would do one of three things. He would withdraw and end the relationship because sexual liaisons based on such fantasies wouldn't float his boat. He would indicate his enjoyment of these things, but within a private relationship, no different to many couples whose sex life is spicy like that. Or he would attempt to develop a relationship with Lizzie with an increasing focus upon physically, sexually violent fantasy, including her and ultimately being comprised of the most serious kinds of sexual assault. It was thought that if Stagg chose either of the first two options, he would all but eliminate himself from the inquiry. But if the third, then it would indicate his sexuality was consistent with the predicted sexuality of Rachel's killer, and the sexual excitement and expectation arising from these violent fantasies would in due course override any caution, and so the operation would continue. So it went on in this way. Letters would be exchanged between the two, in which Stag opened up completely in the normal narrative, talking about everything from his family life to his loneliness and lack of success with women to a special treat enclosed for her, again an explicit fantasy involving all manner of sex, predominantly in an outdoor wooded location, with consistently rear-entry vaginal sex being mentioned. Lizzie's reply to this probingly told Colin that although his letters, I quote, Excite me greatly. I can't but think you are showing great restraint. You're showing control when you feel like bursting. I want you to burst. I want to feel you all powerful and overwhelming so that I'm completely in your power, defenseless and humiliated. These thoughts are sending me into paradise already. This signalled the start in Lizzie's letters, while still filled with the same normal responses and anecdotes in which she gave colour to this mundane fictional life, now also began to hint that her own imagination knew no bounds, but that normal things weren't enough for her and her demands were greater. It was from here onwards that she began hinting that these stemmed from a secret in her life, something that had happened to her in the past that had altered her outlook completely which left her feeling guilty but excited, and something she had to overcome before even considering embarking upon a relationship again. Taking the response I mentioned before into account, Stag's next letter to her, and they were always responded to quickly, this wasn't like waiting for the bloody DVLA to get in touch or anything, admitted that he did indeed hold back in his special letters, and contained a fantasy that now introduced the concept of pain. An extract from this is as follows. You need a damn good fucking by a real man and I'm the one to do it. You will be left humiliated and dirty. I want to and will give you a fucking good sorting out. I'm the only man in this world who is going to give it to you 
I'm going to make sure you're screaming in agony when I abuse you. I'm going to destroy your self-esteem. You will never look anybody in the eyes again. He also asked her to share his secret with him and told her that nothing she could share could put him off her, not even if she was a mass murderer. They continued like this for the next few exchanges and even swapped gifts of a ram's head pendant for him and a small gold ring for her before she responded to him in early April hinting the most yet of this secret, claiming, I've only ever met one man who could make me feel complete. These were due to the experiences we shared. These experiences have shaped me into the woman I am today. I believe I will only ever feel fulfilled again if I meet a man who has the same history as me. The things that happened when I was with this man were not what normal people would like. These involved upsetting and often hurting people. And even though these things are bad and I feel guilty, I can never forget how exhilarating they made me feel. I'm keen to feel the same way, but not by hurting others. I want you to know about the things I've done. Now Stag's responses to these letters are eye-opening. I know I've said it more than once, but you would really have to read all of the books. It's impossible for me to replicate them fully here. But he goes through all range of expressive emotion, in which he asks her to tell him, he pleads with her, hoping he hasn't disappointed her, that he needs her and loves her. I don't mean to sound unkind at all, but he does come across as quite pathetic in parts of them and then always pulls himself together to either put together a fantasy for her or to send her a trinket. His prized one that he'd sent her being an eye-like pendant that he claimed would ward off evil and that he regularly used to wear whilst masturbating. I hope he washed it first then. Regardless, he wanted to progress this relationship a level and had asked her constantly for a telephone number where he could contact her something that had always been a possibility the longer the operation went on. She wrote back telling him of a cat-sitting job that she had lined up that he could contact her at and passed him a telephone number with a list of set days and times where she could ring him. This number would be routed through a Cascade phone system, so although it wasn't her number, it would ring at Lizzie James's flat, where the call could be monitored and recorded by police because it was on pre-arranged days and times. On the 20th of April, Stagg called her for the first time, a short, somewhat awkward affair, and another call was arranged for the next day. In this one, he was somewhat more articulate, and began to talk more about himself, which soon came around to people on his estate spreading rumours about him. When asked as to why this was, he claimed he wouldn't tell her on the phone, but would in the next letter to her. It was something, he hinted, to do with something that had happened the year before. Lizzie, knowing full well what he was hinting at, intentionally blanked this and feigned little interest. He again pushed for a meet, to which she said she wasn't able to at the moment, and after some general chit-chat, the call ended. Sure enough, the next letter described in great length how he'd been arrested and held for three days, referring to the murder but without naming Rachel, but stressed to Lizzie that he had not done anything and wasn't a murderer. Indeed, he believed that all life was sacred. He mentioned that he'd been charged with indecent exposure as a result, giving her a detailed excuse as to what he claimed had really happened, what I mentioned in the previous episode that he'd claimed, and then went on to say how much abuse he still got around the estate because of this, 
and some of the lies and rumours that were being spread about him. It concluded with him expressing his loneliness and saying that if she said it was over, he would leave it and not push, before once again expressing his innocence. No sexual fantasy accompanied this letter, but it was followed up shortly afterwards with a domination-style special letter that featured Lizzie being beaten and almost raped, an extract from which is as follows. I will grab you by your hair and drag you screaming into my bedroom. I will take your clothes off, almost ripping them. I will make you pay for being a dirty slut, I say to you, as I force you to your knees. I place a stool in front of you and force you over it. I take off all my clothes and I take a leather belt from my drawer. Right, you slag, prepare to be in pain. I want you to say sorry for being a dirty slag. I can't hear you, I say as I smack your bum and back, leaving red marks over you. Tears are now rolling down your cheeks and I fuck you hard and violently, causing you pain with the leather belt. I place it over your mouth and I hold each end, pulling your head upwards. You lay there in pain. I grab your tits and violently squeeze your nipples, making you recoil in pain. I pull your hair, hurting you bad. Now I know that's an extreme thing to add into the episode, and it wasn't put in to cause offence to anybody guys, but this is an example of the level of fantasy that Stag was sending to Lizzie James, without receiving one back, and not wasn't for want of him asking. Now that extract is included here because I want to stress that this letter ended with, I hope this is what you wanted. Another few telephone calls followed, before in one, on the 13th of May, a face-to-face meeting was arranged for the following week, Stag's 30th birthday, in which Lizzie hinted that she was ready to give her big reveal. This was followed up the next day with a card that read, Miss Elizabeth James cordially invites Mr. Colin Stagg to Hyde Park on the 20th of May 1993, 2pm, for the occasion of a birthday picnic. Be there or be square. Enclosed was a hand-drawn map of the proposed meeting place, the Dell Cafe next to the Serpentine Lake, and that he would recognise her by her floral dress and the Marks and Spencers bag that she would be carrying. Hyde Park had been chosen for a number of reasons. Wimbledon Common was out of the question and Hyde Park was chosen because it's consistently thronged in with people, although it's probably undoubtedly a bit quieter today, isn't it? And so surveillance of Lizzie would be a lot easier. Watching detectives could also intercept immediately should anything turn violent. Although Stagg had requested meeting somewhere nearer that he knew better, she was to claim that she didn't know central London all that well but she knew Hyde Park, and so it was agreed. At 2pm on the 20th of May 1993, Lizzie James and Colin Stagg met for the first time, his 30th birthday. She'd even bought him a birthday present of a Walkman and a New York Yankees baseball cap, and took him for a birthday lunch to the Dell Cafe, because it was chucking it down with rain, all the time shadowed by a large team of plainclothes officers who were watching and listening to everything, They'd even tailed Stag from 6am that morning through to him arriving at Hyde Park, which he'd done so an hour before the pre-arranged meeting. Over that meal, Lizzie confessed to him that from when she was 12 until she was 18, she'd been drawn into an occult group where she'd been gradually and systematically introduced into ritual sexual abuse. This had involved group sex with other coven members, 
which had left her with a very strong interest in extreme sex and sexual fantasy. But the highlight for her, which led to the best sex she'd ever experienced, was when this had culminated in the ritualistic murder of a young woman and a baby, which she described in detail. Stag listened intently, telling her that he had an open mind and his own beliefs, but added, But I couldn't do anything like that. I have my beliefs, but they don't involve human sacrifices. Yet it wasn't enough to put him off. If it was me, I'd be off like the bloody clappers sitting there with someone who'd just confessed to something like that. But it was a pointer of just how much Stag had become besotted with Lizzie. As their meeting drew to a close and he walked her to a taxi, he handed her a brown envelope containing another special letter for her. This fantasy was to get police more excited than any so far. Although it was flagged with a warning on the envelope that it had an air of danger to it, it went on to describe a sexual encounter again on Wimbledon Common that involves Colin, Lizzie and another man, a stranger Colin invites to join in with them. Both men abuse Lizzie, which she enjoys, before the other man introduces a rope with which Lizzie is tied down spread-eagled and he then fetches a knife which he teases at first down her body to her genitalia before cutting himself on the arm and dripping blood onto her chest, which makes her orgasm. It then goes on to describe both men having rough sex with her, putting the knife to her throat and cheek and teasing her breasts with it. Although, once again, the letter ended with a juxtaposition, stating, I've written this story along the lines of what I feel you're into. If I frightened you, please tell me. I don't want to upset you. And the telephone call the day after their meeting further juxtaposed this, with Stag claiming that he wouldn't know how to fulfil her in the way she'd indicated, claiming he'd never done anything like the acts that he'd described in the letter. He told Lizzie, although he wasn't shocked by her revelation, he thought she was aiming high in trying to find a like-minded soul who had done the same things, once again bringing up the murder he'd been arrested in connection with and accused of, telling her that he hadn't done it, and if he had, I quote, I would have told you because I know I could have trusted you. She replied, if only it had been true, before the conversation then waned and she left it with, I'm going to have to think about things. Stagg wrote to her again the following day, explaining how down he felt at the prospect of potentially losing this woman who'd become his world, and told her, I could have lied to you about the murder and say I did it just to be with you. I wish you felt the same way about me. So he sat down and came up with a plan. He would rekindle her interest in him. In a telephone call to her five days after they'd met, he recounted the tale of, as a 12-year-old boy in 1975, he and a cousin of his had murdered a child and hidden the body whilst on a camping holiday to the New Forest in Hampshire. He told Lizzie, we noticed this little boy and a little girl sitting at the edge of the forest and that, and the little boy ran off playing, and we took the little girl into the forest and we ended up, it wasn't nothing really that perverted, it was just, you know, we ended up killing her, strangling her. The reason we never got done for it is because we were leaving that same evening, but the thing was, when we was actually strangling her, we felt exactly the same feelings that you described to me, you know, everything was buzzing, you know. We were just floating. The whole experience was just floating. He then claimed, I've never told another soul that in my life. 
And he hadn't told another soul because it was an absolute shamble of bollocks that he'd just made up to try and keep her interested, which was quickly verified by police. Now she hadn't dismissed him as lying when he'd come out with this and had in fact arranged another meeting with him for all purposes on the strength of it, but had said to him, it just doesn't make us the same, does it? This statement allowed her to ask Stag questions about it, wanting to know details to see if his feelings over it mirrored her own about the fictional murders she'd told him about. This way he'd be used to Lizzie asking probing questions, should any conversation come around to the murder of Rachel Nickel. She put this into play during the next few telephone calls and in this second meeting, again in Hyde Park, on the 4th of June. Here, Stagg again repeated the generic story he'd given her over the phone and laid it on proper thick, before telling her the reason he hadn't disclosed his own murder before was that with the flack he was still getting from police over his arrest the, the previous year, again bringing up the Rachel Nickel murder, he was worried that police may find out about it. After passing her the usual fantasy letter, this one involving him as a teacher and her as a naughty schoolgirl, and another letter enclosing a hand-drawn map of how to get to his maisonette in Roehampton, both went their separate ways. Lizzie James had annual leave booked after this, so to excuse her absence from letter writing, she claimed that a friend up north had suddenly died, and that she was away to stay with a friend's parents until the funeral. He did respond with a letter of sympathy, but he still couldn't resist enclosing a fantasy one also, to cheer her up he claimed. It was again a graphic description of outdoor sex against a tree, and ended with, I hope it cheered you up, I'm off for a wank now, I can't wait to get hold of those bloody sexy legs Lizzie. Now since his second letter nearly five months before, Stag had been constantly asking for some fantasies of Lizzie's own, but up to this point she'd avoided this. However, his constant requests meant that to dissuade any suspicions that he may have that Lizzie James was anything but genuine and to keep him on the hook, it would at some point have to happen, and so on the 24th of June, he got one from her in the form of a cassette tape. It had been carefully scripted as to not exceed or escalate any of the levels of physical or sexual violence that had not already been introduced into their correspondence. And it couldn't be some made-up fantasy of something wholly different. It had to be based entirely on elements that Stagg had introduced himself, mirroring one of the fantasies he'd already sent her. The account on the tape involved a woodland setting and an explicit sexual encounter between Lizzie and Stagg that's interrupted by a young blonde woman who they catch masturbating to what she sees. The woman accepts the offer to join in with them before Stagg produces a knife from his jeans and cuts the woman underneath her nipple while she performs fellatio on him. He then takes Lizzie from behind as she performs oral sex on the young woman before moving upwards to lick the blood off her breast. Both climax and then withdraw into an embrace and fall asleep before waking some time later to find the girl gone. Now although a young blonde woman had never been mentioned before, all of these elements, the outdoor setting, the threesome, the dripping blood and the knife, were all elements that Stagg had introduced into the special letters beforehand. It must have been a very bizarre thing to have written and recorded that, must, mustn't it? It really very, very strange. 
but Stag played the tape to death, loving every second of it. Another meeting between the two was arranged for the 29th of June in Hyde Park, it was always in Hyde Park, in which the pair sat in deck chairs by the Serpentine, and Lizzie read aloud Stag's latest fantasy, a delightful sounding encounter in which Lizzie had the role of a wealthy businessman's daughter who was kidnapped, held at knife point and sexually abused, before being raped from behind. The conversation then came around once again to Stag asking Lizzie to spend the weekend with him, where he would take her to places that he sunbathed. He claimed Wimbledon Common was perfect for this, and how before the Rachel Nickel murder, he would often go there at night, strip off and masturbate. When asked why he didn't do this anymore, Stag told her that it was dodgy at the moment because of an increased police and ranger presence following the murder the previous year, and that was where Lizzie James pretended that the penny had finally dropped and it was Rachel Nickel that he'd been hinting about, the murder that he'd been arrested in connection with. Now there are a number of different claims about the conversation they then had about this. It does depend on which book you read. Stag says one thing, the book written by a former SIO on the case gives a different spin. What is consistent is basically, Stag begins by telling Lizzie how he's still hassled by police who stop and question him whenever they get chance to because they still think he committed murder. He recounts his arrest and how police were with him whilst he was in custody, hostile, and asking him why he killed her, to which he replied, I didn't murder her, I've never even seen her over there. Enthused and encouraging him to tell more, Lizzie James replies to him here, I wish you had done it, knowing you got away with it, I'd think that's brilliant. I wish you had, screw them. Now the following goes to show just how into a Colin Stagg was, how besotted and how desperate he was for a sexual encounter between the two of them. For he then claimed that he had been on the common at the time of the murder, in fact just over the other side of the hill from where Rachel had been murdered, and went on to describe to Lizzie the fact that she'd been stabbed 49 times, had been raped and almost decapitated. He then referred to the photograph, KP27, that he'd been shown of Rachel's body during an interview and embellished this somewhat, describing in detail how Rachel lay but claiming that she was completely naked with the genitalia showing. He had really forced her open, he described it. He then also told Lizzie James that he'd had an erection as police showed him the photograph. Now the listening officers believed that this was Stag building up to a confession here. He now had, unknowingly to him, been caught on tape admitting he was on the common at the time of the murder, which they suspected anyway, and which the accounts of two witnesses supported, and he had described the number of wounds and Rachel's body exactly how it was found, which police were adamant he couldn't have inferred from the photograph that he was shown, for whilst it was specifically chosen to shock, it was also one chosen that preserved Rachel's dignity as much as possible. As for the erection, who knew? Yet he claimed that she'd been raped when she hadn't, although she had been sodomized. This was confusion put down to Stag's sexual inexperience. But now he'd revealed all of this, it could be brought up again, and was so over the next few telephone calls between he and Lizzie over the following days. But then something was to occur that threw the entire operation into jeopardy. 
On Monday the 5th of July 1993, the Daily Star newspaper carried a big picture of Colin Stagg on its front page, which led onto a two-page spread inside underneath the headline, I didn't kill Rachel Nickel. The previous day, a journalist named Nick Constable, which sounds suspiciously like a made-up name that, doesn't it? But apparently it's not had knocked on Stagg's door, chancing his arm because the one-year anniversary of the murder was fast looming up, and wanting a scoop, had decided to try Colin Stagg to see if he would give an interview. To his surprise, Stagg had agreed, and inviting Constable into his home, had then gone on to tell how the police had singled him out and thought he was guilty of the murder because he was into witchcraft. He went on about how the police suspected him of Satanism, all because he had a bedroom painted black, and suspected him of being involved in ritual sacrificing due to the pigeon feathers they'd found in the room. He did admit to having an altar in his massive pentagram, plus he couldn't hardly disguise his bookshelf, could he? But claimed that this was completely due to his followings of the Wiccan religion. After giving his tried and tested account of his movements on the day of the murder, Stagg said, It wasn't the fact that I was questioned about the murder that bothered me and all the police were only doing their duty. What really annoyed me was the fact that people in the nearby flats were spreading lies about me. They said I would pester and annoy women, and that I was a pervert. He then posed for a photograph in his front room, looking every much the wronged man airing a genuine grievance in the circumstances. Distinguishable next to him in the photograph, having pried a place on his mantelpiece underneath his coat of arms with its cross swords, was a framed photograph of an attractive blonde woman looking playfully over his shoulder to pose for the camera. Police had been advised before the onset of the operation that any external influence concerning the murder, say for example mass publicity about it, the thought that the investigation was anything but running cold, or the anniversary of it, would raise the killer's levels of caution greatly and so minimise any chances of him opening up to an undercover operative. So to see Stagg on the front pages of newspapers they thought a crushing blow and their operation was now deader than John Denver. But it so happens that as they saw this headline they were en route to liaise with Paul Britton in Leicester ahead of another planned meeting between Stagg and Lizzie and when shown it Britain advised a strategy where the damage could be minimised and the operation could continue. When they next spoke on the telephone, which was incidentally that same afternoon, as directed Lizzie laid into Stag, he'd upset her and broken her trust, all the deepest darkest secrets she'd told him and he'd now put her in jeopardy. Thanks to him, the photograph she'd sent was now in the newspaper. He claimed he was simply standing up to the people spreading rumour and lies about him in an attempt to clear his name once and for all, the constant abuse around the estate still continuing. He followed this up with a letter, again to cheer you up, along the lines of stuff already mentioned, on the common mutual masturbation followed by a male stranger joining them whilst they were having sex. There was the use of knife involved, however this time, the knife was scored around Lizzie's neck to draw blood before she was then sexually penetrated with it. Similar themed recounted fantasies came in telephone calls over the following weeks, and in his eyes, with this serving to re-establish their rapport, 
another meeting was arranged for the 21st of July. When Stagg arrived at Hyde Park that morning for their meeting, he brought a copy of the Daily Star newspaper containing his interview with him, with several paragraphs of it circled, where police got it wrong, he claimed. As they sat underneath a tree in the park, the conversation predominantly concerned the murder of Rachel Nickell, with Lizzie James very much taking the driving seat. She opened with the rather direct, I want someone like the man who did this thing. I think about it, I try and imagine it, and the thought of it is so exciting. And then urged Stagg to tell her again what he had previously, but this time asking him further questions. For example, using a marker in Hyde Park so he could describe to her how far away from the murder scene he was at the time, to questioning him about the appearance of Rachel's genitalia in the photograph police had shown him, which he demonstrated at first with his cupped hands, but then expanded upon by physically demonstrating to Lizzie how Rachel's body had lain in the photograph. He again admitted he wished it had been him that done it because the thought of it turned him on, and when she brought up the things that she'd ostensibly done in her past, he told her he couldn't compete with them. Lizzie replied to this, I've been thinking little fantasies that perhaps you are the man who did that, but if you're not that man and haven't done that kind of thing, then you'll never, ever be able to fulfil me. You'll never, Colin, never. And now I'm going to live my whole life like this, time and time again, hurt. Stag replied, I'm terribly sorry, Lizzie, but I haven't. With this, Lizzie began to wind up the meeting. It was clear to her by this time, as well as the senior officers listening in, that Stag would now never confess. He'd talk about the murder, sure, but he would never admit to it. And so, by claiming that he would never be the man for her, walked away from him, effectively ending the relationship and the undercover operation. They were to speak on the telephone the following day, where Stag asked her to reconsider her decision, but she refused, sticking to her story that he wasn't the right man for her. In reality, the Lizzie James character had now been completely retired. Stagg was to write to her the same day enclosing a page of explicit sketches depicting a dagger dripping blood onto a man and woman having rear-entry sex, a woman displaying her genitalia and a giant erect ejaculating penis. You know, proper school textbook doodlings. Well, at least it was in my school anyway. I always remember a history one. Oh my God, wow. He enclosed these, I quote, as a last lingering thought for you, my darling. I hope you enjoy them. He also enclosed the letters that she'd written him and a copy of the cassette tape. Lizzie did reply in a final letter to Stagg suggesting another meeting, ostensibly one to say goodbye, the cover story being she was going to work in America. But on the 10th of August, Stagg replied in what was to be his final letter to her, refusing this, suggesting that it wasn't a good idea, feeling it would be too upsetting. He also admitted in this final letter that once again he wished he could have been the murderer that seemed to impress her so, before confessing to entirely making up the story about the 1975 New Forest murder as a simple, pathetic attempt to impress her. With the undercover operation now ended, it left police with some 1,700 pages of correspondence and transcript to go through that had been obtained as a result. 
Police were also convinced as a result of it that Stagg was the killer that they were seeking, but it was now up to the Crown Prosecution Service to decide whether or not it equated to usable evidence, and if so, whether or not it was enough to make a case to warrant charges. At 5.30am on the morning of Tuesday the 17th of August 1993, Colin Stagg answered the frantic hammering on his front door to a team of plainclothes detectives who told him that as a result of new information coming to light and new witnesses coming forward, he was under arrest for the murder of Rachel Nickel. With his dog once again taken to its former owner, as Colin Stagg was handcuffed and placed into an unmarked police car, to begin the short journey to Wimbledon Police Station, a forensic team moved into 16 Ibsley Gardens to conduct a fuller, much more in-depth search of the premises, even to the extent of digging up Stagg's beloved garden to a depth of two feet. Stagg, meanwhile, on the journey to the station, told police, I'm bloody innocent, I've been stitched up with this. Now I'm going to lose my home and my dog. The man who did this is laughing at you. The CPS had indeed decided that there were grounds to make a case against Colin Stagg for the murder of Rachel Nickel. Beginning at 1.15pm that afternoon, under the advisement of his solicitor, Stagg gave an unrelenting series of no-comment answers to everything that was put to him in a series of four interviews. He didn't falter when questioned again about his tried and tested version of the day of the murder, whether he knew a Julie Pines. He didn't even break from this when asked if he knew someone called Lizzie James or about the 30 or 40 correspondence letters that they'd exchanged. And he still said nothing when a knock on the door of the interview suite was answered to reveal Lizzie James herself who identified herself on tape as a serving police officer and proceeded to run through the wealth of precise descriptions Stagg had given her of the position of Rachel's body, right down to the position of her hands, the injuries to her, and the fact that he had admitted being on the common at the time. She also read aloud extracts from his letter where he had introduced the concept of a knife, the special letter he'd given her following their first meeting in Hyde Park. At 6.49pm, the interviews were terminated and Detective Superintendent John Bassett informed Stagg that he was to be charged with the murder of Rachel Nickel. He was kept overnight in the cells there before the following morning being taken to Wimbledon Magistrates Court where he was remanded in custody. An angry crowd lined the outside of the court and threw eggs and stones at the van containing Stagg as it sped him to Wandsworth Prison which was to be his home for the next 13 months. But this is where fate began to smile on Colin Stagg somewhat. His legal team, reading the basis of the evidence that police had to take him to trial and thinking, eh, what planet are these people on? Pushed for a traditional committal hearing, where a stipendary magistrate reads through the evidence and witnesses, plus all expert witnesses involved, are produced to give testimony before it's ultimately decided whether or not the case can proceed to full trial. At each of his court appearances, Stagg's bail was requested but denied, recognising the graveness of the charge against him, and so he remained in Wandsworth Prison as remand prisoner PG2656 
until the committal hearing began on the 17th of February 1994. At this hearing, presided over by stipendary magistrate Terry English, prosecuting counsel William Boyce and defence counsel Jim Sturman spent the next 11 days cross-examining a multitude of witnesses, some 24 in total, ranging from expert witnesses such as Paul Britton, who spoke about the design and purpose of the undercover operation, and examining pathologist Dr Richard Shepherd, to people we've already met throughout the tale, Jane Harriman, Amanda Philan, Susan Gale, Lillian Avid, and so on, who all reiterated the witness statements they'd given to police and were cross-examined by both counsels over them. Even Lizzie James, the most sensational witness to appear, gave evidence in court, albeit from behind the screen with a voice disguised. The press, who had gotten wind of the undercover operation from a leak just the day after Stagg was arrested, were that clamouring to obtain a picture of her, that the court doors were locked and a police guard was placed upon them, and all of the courtroom windows were shut and sealed, and covered to prevent any possible exposure of her identity. Finally, after 11 days and compelling argument from both counsel, Mr English decreed that based on the evidence he'd heard, it was his decision that the case was to proceed to full trial at the Old Bailey, although he admitted that the case against the accused wasn't the strongest case he'd ever seen. But it was to go a whole lot more tits up also for police, for although they were to have their day in court with Stagg, a judgement in a separate case across the country just three weeks later threw into doubt whether Stagg would ever actually appear before a murder trial jury. A mobile grocer from Leeds named Keith Hall walked free from Leeds Crown Court, acquitted of the murder of his wife Patricia, after the judge, Mr Justice Waterhouse, ruled that the evidence of an undercover police officer who had befriended Hall and who he'd become besotted with sounds familiar yeah was inadmissible including a tape recorded confession to a murder hall had been arrested on suspicion of the murder of his wife after neighbors had heard a blazing row coming from the house one night in the spring of 1992 and patricia's car was later found abandoned some miles away she'd taken no clothing with her her bank account hadn't been touched and none of her relatives whom she was close to had heard sight nor sound of her. When the car was discovered, the driver's seat was moved to the position Patricia was used to drive in, although witnesses came forward who saw what they thought was a man in the car, and who was then seen fleeing over a fence and across a field. Suspected of murder, Hall was questioned, but on legal advice said nothing, and despite a thorough search around the Hall home and several other sites nearby, no body was found and police could find nothing to implicate him directly. Then in October 1992, Hall replied to a Lonely Hearts advert in a local newspaper, and the woman subsequently reported him to police, shocked at recognising his name from the newspapers, and the fact that his wife had only been missing for six months. Police asked her to continue her correspondence with Hall to see where it led, but she was soon replaced to do this by an undercover police officer known as Liz, what are the bloody chances, from the West Yorkshire Regional Crime Squad. A four-month relationship of sorts progressed from this, from letters to phone calls, and then a meeting in the pub car park, 
the first of several such meetings over the next five months. Eventually, by February 1993, he'd produced an engagement ring and asked Liz to move in with him. And when she refused, the following evening, the 26th of February 1993, claiming she was worried in case his wife returned, Hall told her that that was impossible before confessing to killing his wife and disposing of her body. Three days later, he was arrested and charged with the murder after the CPS now agreed that with the evidence obtained from the undercover officer, there was sufficient evidence to proceed with the prosecution. Hall remained on remand for a year, but when his trial began in March 1994, the evidence from the undercover officer was ruled inadmissible, and with no other evidence to present, the Crown directed that the case against Hall cease, so on the 12th of March 1994, he walked out of court a free man. Now I've only just summarised that case here but it did grab me interest when I was researching this one and it's one we'll come back to in much greater depth another time on the show. So you can imagine how the Operation Edzel team felt when they heard this then. They must have felt like a turkey who'd caught someone glaring at it around Christmas time. But they had reassurance that the CPS believed that their operation had been designed and run along very different lines to the Hall one. Unlike that one, theirs had not been to elicit a confession, but to rather allow the suspect to eliminate himself fully or implicate himself further based upon his own choices. Nonetheless, the prosecution were not very optimistic about the prospect of their evidence being well received when Stagg came to trial at the Old Bailey on the 5th of September 1994. And they were right to think this too. For after adjourning proceedings for three days to allow himself time to familiarise himself with some 700 pages of evidence, and after listening to impassioned argument for and against the Lizzie James evidence being allowed by counsels John Nutton and William Clegg QCs for the Crown and Defence respectively over the days following this, at 9.45am on the morning of Wednesday the 14th of September 1994, Mr Justice Ognall delivered a lengthy judgment that ripped the heart out of the prosecution case. In fact, so scathing was his condemnation of the police that many of the observers in the packed courtroom were left shocked, with all eyes on Rachel's parents, Andrew and Monica Nickell, who had attended each day of proceedings. He described the covert operation as misconceived and doomed to failure, claiming that the object of the entire exercise, that the prosecution had sought to persuade him, was highly disingenuous. He furthered that the prosecution had not persuaded him that the overall material obtained in the undercover operation was not unfairly obtained, and went on, I would be the first to acknowledge the very great pressures put on the police in their pursuit of this grave inquiry, but I am afraid this behaviour betrays not merely an excessive zeal, but a substantial attempt to incriminate a suspect by positive and deceptive conduct of the grossest kind. He picked to bits extracts from letters between Lizzie James and Stagg, where it was clear the contents of which, he said, were of deliberate shaping and leading by the officer. He was also openly scathing about the sending of the sex tape, which he described as, thoroughly reprehensible and added if a police operation involves the clear trespass into impropriety then the court must stand firm and bar the way he then ruled that the letters and the taped conversations and telephone calls were inadmissible 
and the Crown immediately withdrew its case, having no other evidence to offer. At 11.45am, Colin Stagg was declared not guilty and shortly afterwards walked out of the Old Bailey a free man. Following the decision, Andrew and Monica Nickell gave a dignified statement to the press outside the court which summed up the feelings of almost all of the public gallery and in part read, At this point I want to pay a tribute to the bravery of the undercover policewoman who put her life on the line. At the end of the operation the police, the psychologist and the Crown Prosecution Service all had their own views as to whether Stagg was the murderer. Thirteen months later, having been committed for trial, Stagg now walks free. He has not been tried by a jury. His Lordship, Mr Justice Ognall, ruled that the police undercover operation broke the rules laid down to ensure a safe conviction. The ruling is well argued in law and guided by many a precedent. The effect, however, is to rule that all the evidence gained during the undercover operation is inadmissible in a court of law. The law has been upheld, but where is the justice? He then made a significant pause and uttered the following sentence that spoke absolute volumes. I understand that the police will now keep the file on my daughter's murder open. They are not looking for anyone else. We have an impasse which may, and I emphasise may, put other daughters and wives at risk in the months ahead. Now I did think this was a very dignified response from someone who must have been shattered, angry, upset, emotions beyond belief. I mean, it's very well put and heartfelt this, isn't it? And although you can feel the bitterness in it, it's a composed statement made whilst feeling the kind of feelings you simply can't even begin to imagine, can you? At the same time, it put out the very clear message, the police know he did it, but can't prove it. And you have to understand this to a point, don't you? I dare say any of us in the same situation would have said something similar and probably not as composed. But then all eyes were on Colin Stagg as he came out of the court, a free man for the first time in 13 months. Now there's widespread footage of the moment that he does available and he looks almost dwarfed and like a rabbit caught in the headlights as he reads from prepared statements almost unheard over the crowd. In part, he claims, My life has been ruined by a mixture of half-baked psychological theories and some strange stories written to satisfy the sexual requests of an undercover police officer. The judge recognised that there was never any evidence against me no forensic evidence, no confession evidence, nothing at all. I've always maintained my innocence of this terrible crime from day one, and I am pleased that I have finally been vindicated. I've always maintained that the undercover police operation was a waste of police manpower and funds, which could have been put to a more fruitful use looking for the real killer. Following this, he was escorted to the Waldorf Hotel by his legal team, to spend his first night of freedom and to court the inevitable media circus that would follow. And just like that, Colin Stagg was out, his nightmare of the past 13 months over, or so he thought. He was wrong, for he was to endure another 14 years of being a pariah. The sad truth being that, to many who were ignorant of the full facts of the entire tale, he probably still is guilty in their eyes, 
than simply remembering the high profile of the case back at the time and assuming that innocence didn't prevail, rather that police slipped up and Rachel's killer today still walks free. But he categorically doesn't. Colin Stagg, whilst this will be forever the predominant name associated with the Wimbledon common murder, and he may be considered to be many other things based on what I've recounted in this episode and the previous one, but Colin Stagg isn't a killer, for whilst he was languishing in Wandsworth Prison on remand, awaiting trial for Rachel's murder back in 1994, for whilst he was languishing in Wandsworth Prison on remand, awaiting trial for Rachel's murder back in 1994, the very same time across the judiciary system, another man was just about to begin what equated to a life sentence. His complicity in several horrific crimes unquestionable beyond doubt. He'd even pleaded guilty to them when faced with the overwhelming forensic evidence police had to suggest his guilt. He was a multiple rapist and confirmed double murderer then, and although he was long suspected of it over the years, it was to be 14 years and advancements in forensic science before he was proven to be at least a triple killer, and I stress at least too. Because he was the killer of Rachel Nickell, not Colin Francis Stagg. He's been the ghost throughout the arc so far, the person who gives the arc its title. And we shall finally meet him next episode. Now when we've completed Maniac, what I shall do is catch up with all of the players in this macabre tale, those concerned, their families and loved ones, in what, and I hope Ben and Rosie don't mind me borrowing their phrase here, but a kind of, so where are we now, type thing. So I won't just abandon Stag following his release, nor have I forgotten about the victims of the green chain attacks, or Samantha and Jasmine's family and loved ones. I'll strive to bring the arc as complete as I can. I am amazed actually that a prosecution case was ever raised against Colin Stagg based on the evidence police had from the letters and transcript alone. No forensic evidence or irrefutable eyewitness evidence, anything was circumstantial evidence at best. And whilst not through all of the correspondence between him and Lizzie James, certainly a few clear instances where she was asking him leading questions. Perhaps a jury may have seen through this and been swayed, should they have got to hear it. But if that had happened, then an innocent man, who all it boiled down to was simply a lonely, sexually inexperienced man who would have said anything for the prospect of getting his end away, to put it bluntly, he may have still been in prison to this day. He is someone I do feel great pity for, because although a verdict of not guilty was recorded, beginning with the statement by Andrew Nickell, there were many who for many years believed that he'd simply skirted justice, never excusing the fact that he'd never appeared before a jury to get this verdict. As a result, he was still branded a killer by several, was shunned by many, and had to endure countless years of abuse, threats of physical violence, countless character assassinations through the tabloid press, and sacks of hate mail so vast, it would be like the Blue Peter postbag if John Noakes had clubbed the seal to death on the studio on camera. Two of the books I've used whilst I was writing the arc, Pariah and Who Really Killed Rachel, are co-authored by Colin Stagg himself, and go into his life following him being found not guilty in much more depth. Although, and I have to say this, I do have sympathy because he was wrongly accused of such a horrific crime 
and his life was left in ruins following it. And I understand his bitterness at that completely, but through his frankly written books, and it's almost like he has no shame whatsoever, he wasn't someone I could warm to. I was left with the overall impression of someone who's quick to make excuses and to try to have an explanation for everything. You'd have to read the books yourselves, you really would, just to see if you agreed. So it's quite a tale this one, isn't it? And now it comes, what are your thoughts and opinions upon it? As I've hinted at a few times throughout the arc, especially in this and the previous couple of episodes, this part of the tale has been an immense one to research and write. The amount of information that there is to take in is vast. And then to sort through it all, keeping the salient points and putting them in such a way as to tell the tale thoroughly in detail, without it being longer than the bloody Bible, well... Let's just say it's led to more than one headache, and it's funny I haven't had a bloody nosebleed, I tell you. There are, as I've said, several books available concerning the investigation of the Rachel Nakel murder, and I do recommend absolutely all of them. Don't just choose one, all of them, because you get the chance to view the entire tale from the perspectives of an independent journalist, the police, and even Colin Stagg himself. All have been incredibly helpful whilst writing and researching the arc, and each make for fascinating reading, and a full list of references will be going up following the next episode, where we meet the real maniac. I hope that you found this episode both an informative and interesting one. I worked pretty bloody hard on it, so I really do hope you have. And of course, you got to be joining me for the next part of Maniac, which will be coming to you very soon. I'm having a day free now to give me little typing fingers a bit of time off and then I'll crack back on with it shortly. Be there or be square. With that I'll wrap up here so all that remains for me to say is that I thank you very much for joining me here for the episode today. I've been, I still am and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys good times, safe times and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care folks and goodbye for now.